Welcome to the Trinity Church Aberdeen podcast, where you can listen to our most recent sermons. To find out more about who we are and what we believe, visit trinityaberdeen.org.uk. We're going to turn to God's Word together to the book of 2 Samuel, chapter 2. And you'll find that on page 255 of the Church Bibles, page 255 or page 300 if you're using the large print. You may remember the beautiful lament in chapter 1. Now hear God's word. After this, David inquired of the Lord, Shall I go up into any of the cities of Judah? And the Lord said to him, Go up. David said, To which shall I go? And he said, To Hebron. So David went up there, and his two wives also, Ahinoham of Jezreel, and Abigail, the widow of Nahal of Carmel. And David brought up his men who were with him, everyone with his household, And they lived in the towns of Hebron. And the men of Judah came, and there they anointed David king over the house of Judah. When they told David it was the men of Jabesh-Gilead who buried Saul, David sent messengers to the men of Jabesh-Gilead and said to them, May you be blessed by the Lord, because you showed this loyalty to Saul your Lord and buried him. Now may the Lord show steadfast love and faithfulness to you, and I will do good to you, because you have done this thing. Now therefore let your hands be strong and be valiant, for Saul your Lord is dead, and the house of Judah has anointed me king over them. But, Abner, there's always a but, isn't there? In the beginning, God made the heavens and the earth, and he saw that all that he had made was good. But Abner, the son of Ner, commander of Saul's army, the old king, the previous king, took Ishbosheth, the son of Saul, and brought him to Mahanaim, and he made him king over Gilead, and the Asherites in Jezreel, and Ephraim, and Benjamin, and all Israel. Ishbosheth, Saul's son, was 40 years old when he began to reign over Israel. And he reigned for two years. But the house of Judah followed David. And the time that David was king in Hebron over the house of Judah was seven years and six months. Amen. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, in these moments... We are so thankful to be in your hands. It is no accident that we are here today. These people, each one of us known to you by name, here we are in your presence and in your hands. And so we pray, would you speak, take your living word and cause it to live in all our hearts by the power of your spirit and for the glory of Christ Jesus, your son, our king. In his name we pray. Amen. The Lord Jesus told a story. He told a parable 
in which he summed up the world's response to him coming into the world. You may know it, Luke's Gospel. Jesus tells a story where he says, the world says to him, we do not want this man to reign over us. We do not want this man, you, Jesus, to reign over us. Friends, if you want the story of the world in a sentence, the whole story of the universe summed up in a few words, it's that. If you want to explain this morning the deepest sorrows of your own soul and why you've cried yourself to sleep, or if you want, if you want to, to dig beneath the sound bites and the podcasts and the talk shows to get at what is wrong with the world and what is wrong with us in the world that has gone wrong, those words of the Lord Jesus Christ give you the diagnosis you are seeking. We do not want this man, him, to be our king. It may be this morning, friends, that you're new to church, quite new to church, new to the Christian faith, perhaps. Somebody brought you along here today. Here is what Christian people believe. God made a world that had at its heart a beautiful garden. And he made a man and woman to be in charge of the garden. He, he subcontracted the care of the garden to them. And as soon as they took control of it, they shut the door in his face. And they said, we'll take it from here now. You can leave. Your work here is done. We do not want you to reign over us. The gardeners became the vandals. The garden became a wasteland. It's why tears fall. It's why relationships break. It's why pornography exists. It's why your loved ones die. And when God himself came into the wilderness world to change it back into a garden again, when God himself came, the king of the universe, the Lord Jesus Christ, we looked at him and said, Really? You? No, 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 not you. We do not want this man to reign over us. You're no better than the one we met in the garden, not you. Listen to these words. The great and decisive question of life is not what we achieve, nor how good we become, and certainly not how much we acquire. The great and decisive question is, who is your king? Who is your king? It will do no good at all to be highly successful, seriously virtuous, or even ridiculously wealthy if you are on the wrong side of history. And so this morning, I want to show us together, with our Bibles open in front of us, I want to show us what it looks like to be on the right side of history. We're going to see what it looks like to be on the wrong side of history. We're going to begin to look at that. There are two kingdoms here in what we've read together. Second Samuel chapter 2, verses 1 to 11. There are two kings, a true king and a rival king, a pretender to the throne. Now we're coming back to our series in Second Samuel, this book that was written so long ago. We're we're coming, it's all here, isn't it, in these verses to names and places and events. And look, you haven't thought about 2 Samuel, have you, for two whole weeks. 
since the last time we were in these pages three weeks ago. I mean, I, I can't even remember what I did two days ago, never mind three weeks ago. And so we read God's word together, don't we? And we, we listen to it being read and we think, what has all of this got to do with me and my problems and my hopes and my joys? We need some help, don't we, as we look at it. When we're reading a narrative like this, a story, look for the narrator's clues that he's just dropped along the path about where the action is. So if you put your eye on the passage that we read, you'll see that your Bible gives it to you in three sections, doesn't it? Verses 1 to 4, or halfway through verse 4, then verses 5 to 7, and then verses 8 to 11. So three sections... But now notice what happens at the very end of each section. Do you see it in verse 4? And then verse 7? And then verse 11? It's like words in bold or italic, or they'd be flashing if they were on your Instagram story. Verse 4, the men of Judah came, and there they anointed David king over the house of Judah. Look at the end of verse 7. Saul, your Lord is dead, and the house of Judah has anointed me king over them. Look at verse 11. The time that David was king in Hebron over the house of Judah was seven years and six months. You see it? Three sections, three endings, exactly the same each time. David is king. And he is king over the house of Judah. Friends, there is the right side of history to be on. I want you to leave here this morning on David's side. In David's kingdom, but, but, verse 8, but Abner, the son of Ner, commander of Saul's army, took Ishbosheth, the son of Saul. So, so David goes up to Hebron. We're going to see that Hebron is a beautiful, beautiful place, a beautiful word to be given. But we'll come to why that's so beautiful. But this man, Abner, he says, no, no, no. Not, not on my watch, David. We do not want this man to reign over us. And Abner takes yesterday's king, doesn't he? The, the rejected king, the dead king. And he takes his son in a desperate, sad, sorry attempt to hold on to that line. And in the north, he sets up a rival kingdom. Friends, today, do not go with Abner. Or go with Ishbosheth, his son, Saul's son. He, here is the wrong side of history to be on. Do you know what Mahanaim means? Verse 8, the, the place where this pseudo king is crowned. Do you know what Mahanaim means? It means two camps, two places. Abner is not uniting the tribes under David, is he? No, he is, he is dividing the people into two, splitting them down the middle. This is a tale of two kingdoms. I want to show you three things this morning from three sections. I suspect we're not going to get to the third one, and I suspect you won't mind at all because it will mean the sermon will be shorter. But three things. Number one, the surprises in the kingdom. I want to show you the surprises in the kingdom. Secondly, I want to give you the gospel of the kingdom. And thirdly, perhaps next week, the opposition to the kingdom. You see them, verses 1 to 4, the surprises in the kingdom. Verses 5 to 7, the gospel of the kingdom. 
verses 8 to 11, the opposition to the kingdom. Let's look at the surprises first. There are lots of surprises in God's kingdom. And I thought about, thought about it this week as I sat at my desk typing these words. I thought about as many of your faces as I possibly could sitting at the computer screen. Some of you are discovering this, aren't you? I think some of you are simply amazed to be here. It's, it's, it's almost an overwhelming surprise that you, you of all people are here sitting in a church. Me here with, with these sort of people? Five years ago, you wouldn't have believed it. Somebody had told you that you're going to be sitting in a church. You're going to be singing and praying and listening to the Bible being taught. And it goes right to the very heart of the Christian faith that the God that we have found and the God that we have come to know in the Lord Jesus and the God we've come to adore with all our hearts is not the kind of God we ever expected to find. And it's true here in these verses, it's true all the way through the Bible that his kingdom, his reign, that the way that he rules is not the kind of dominion we ever expected. Look at verse 1 again. After this, David inquired of the Lord. Always slow down when you're feeling disorientated by centuries past reading a text like this. Take in the details when you're trying to get your head around it. After this. After the beautiful, powerful, painful lament of chapter 1. The king is dead. Saul the king is dead. Long live the king, David. After this. After a monarch dies. Now what? What happens next? What would you do? Now that Queen Elizabeth II is dead, after this, what do you expect the king to do? What does David do? David inquired of the Lord. David inquired of the Lord. Ah, it is is a beautiful surprise. Now that he is in charge, David knew that he was not in charge. Do you see it? Now that he's holding the reins, David knows who is really holding the reins. And if you, if you have read 1 Samuel all the way through into 2 Samuel, this comes like a breath of fresh air. Fresh air. A king who inquires of the Lord, really? It's a beautiful play on words here. You see the name Saul, the previous king, The name Saul literally meant asked for. Remember that the people turned their back on God and asked for a king. And so God said, okay, I'll give you what you want. You can have a king who is actually called asked for. Here's what you wanted. But now David's movement towards the throne begins with a very different kind of asking. He asked the Lord. He inquired of the Lord. He spoke to the Lord. We don't know exactly how all of this worked. If you look at verses 1 and, one and 2, there's a lot of chewing and froing, isn't there? He's asking the Lord. The Lord's, Lord responds. He asks again. The Lord responds again. We don't know how it worked exactly. It's very likely, most commentators say, it would have happened via a priest as a mediator. We don't know. We do know that in the Old Testament, God spoke to his people in various 
ways through various means. But it's not how it happens, but what it shows us about David's stance about his heart. That's the significant thing. He is going up to Hebron. Significant, isn't it? Up to Hebron. It's not accidental that Hebron is geographically up country. It's a way of saying David is now going up in the world. He's going up towards the throne. He's going to be crowned king up there over the house of Judah. But here's what the writer is saying. Look at that man. He is literally going up the stairs to the throne, but he is going up to the crown by going down in himself. Do you see it? He is humbling himself before the Lord. He stands as a man in all his readiness to be invested with the power of kingship. And the first thing he does is he says, God, help me. God, help me. What should I do? I don't know what to do. Where should I go? How? When? What should our king have done following the death of his mother? As I presume somebody in Balmoral, I presume this happened. There was a moment where somebody said, the queen is dead. Long live the king. What should he have done at that moment? Well, in his heart, if not in person, He should have fallen to his knees and said, so help me, God. Help me. Did you see it? The the first surprise in God's kingdom is to meet a humble king, a dependent king. John Calvin says, let us learn from this passage that all our life we are to have God as our guide. And his word as the unquestionable standard of right and wrong. Let us then boldly run to him and continue doing so. And we will find that we have in him a faithful guide for all of our life. He will not just put us on the right road and leave us there in suspense. But he will always be with us. Then if you think men from generations ago were austere or boring or or dull. Men like John Calvin, listen to this. He says, we should compare God to the guardian of a little child standing behind them in order to say to the little child, go this way. Go this way. Isn't it amazing? The great king. Do Do you know who you really are, king? You're just like a little child going off on your first day at nursery with your mum standing there. What do mums do when they send the child off? They don't just open the door on day one of nursery and say, find your way up the road. No, they take them there and they stand there until they can see that the way ahead is clear for the child to go in. Oh, friends, God is like that. He is there with us at every stage of life, showing us the way to walk in. The way is They're ahead of us. Our role is to say, Lord, help me. Friends, today, never ever join the kingdom where the leaders of that kingdom think that they know better than God and can do it alone without God so that they never inquire of Him. They never humble themselves before Him. But rather, instead, join the kingdom where the King of the kingdom teaches us to pray 
Well, look at, look at page 8 in our order of service. What are we going to say together in just a moment? Your kingdom come, your will be done. We're going to say, give us, forgive us, lead us. That's the vocabulary of the kingdom. Give me, Lord. Forgive me, lead me. I am weak, but you are strong. Well, the surprise of the kingdom is that the way up is always, always the way down. The way up is always the way way down. And sadly, in our passage, there is just a hint here, isn't there? Just a hint that this, this humble, wonderful king is one day going to sell the shop. Just a hint, isn't there, that he's going to become proud and strong. Do you see it in verse 2? So David went up there. Who did he go with? And his two wives also, Ahinoham of Jezreel and Abigail, the widow of Nabal of Carmel. See, in the Old Testament, polygamy was not forbidden, but it was never encouraged. And by chapter 3, we're going to see that it has actually become a serious problem for David. Six wives and six sons and oh the problems that come from divided families Deuteronomy chapter 17 a king in Israel shall not acquire many wives for himself oh and David here humbly inquiring yes humble yes but beginning just beginning to embark on a path that will lead him and the nation into ruin and despair and disaster. Remember Calvin's words, let us learn from this passage that all our life we are to have God as our guide and his word as the unquestionable standard of right and wrong. Friends, the surprise of the kingdom is that God's way is the right way. When God says the king should not do this, the king should not do this. The the surprise is not that we don't know what to do so often, is it? Or, Or where to go, if we're honest. Look at your own life over the past months and years, the decisions that you've made. The surprise, if we're honest, is that we do know the way and yet we so often choose the wrong way, don't we? Our way, my way. You know, David here with his wives, if if I had to pick the single most consistent reason over many years why I have watched sheep wander off into other pastures or lose their way or become divided in their loyalties to end up split between two kingdoms, a foot in two worlds, the, the single biggest reason is relationships. Choices made, relationships begun that lead in years to come miles and miles of separation from God and his people. the, The surprise in God's kingdom is how clear the way, but how blurry we make it. Is is that you this morning, friend, asking, Lord, Lord, what should I do here? And actually you're asking a question to which the Bible gives you the answer, but you just don't want to hear it. You're asking the question maybe as a delaying tactic, not because you really want an answer, 
Well, the surprise is so often that the way is clear. Maybe hard, yes, painful sometimes, but clear. Can I show you another surprise here, friends? One other surprise in these verses. What does the Lord say to him? Go up to Hebron. To Hebron. What a beautiful thing to do, to say. To Hebron. Choosing this city of all the cities for the coronation of Judah. This word Hebron, it's a place name that tells a thousand stories. It's like in Scotland saying Bannockburn or Stirling or Falkirk if you want to talk about the English. You mention a place like that and immediately there is a whole world of evocation stirred up in your, your, your emotions and your memories. There is history here. See, Hebron was the city of Abraham. Hebron was where Abraham settled. Hebron is where Israel's life in the land of God's promise began. And so the narrator is saying to us that David's move to Hebron connects him to the greatest figure in Israel's history. It connects David to Abraham. David's rise to the throne is the next big chapter in the story of Abraham. What did God promise to Abraham? Through you, Abraham, all the families of the earth will be blessed. Through you, Abraham, the gospel will go out to all the ends of the earth. It's why Matthew begins his gospel by saying, this is the book of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Jesus is linked to the two greatest chapters in Israel's history. Oh, it is stunningly beautiful. This, this man here, this humble but flawed, this dependent but weak man, this king who is on the right side of history, and through him, that's why you and I are here today, and all the nations of the earth will be blessed. By saying, go up to Hebron, God is laying out his plans on a large scale, international promises coming to fruition. You cannot get any bigger than this, friends. And then we get verse 4. And then we get verse 4. I, I don't know how to do this noise. I'm not going to embarrass myself. But if, if verse 4, if this was an animated story, you would have that kind of wilting noise. You know what it is? Some of the musicians could play it, couldn't they? Something that just, everything just goes downhill. David inquiring, going up to Hebron. And the men of Judah came. And there they anointed David over the house of Judah. Do you know why it wilts? Why it's a decline? The king who is carrying on Abraham's story of worldwide blessing is ruling over who? One tribe. One tribe out of twelve. The blessing through Abraham to the whole world comes to a fraction of God's people. Just one tribe, a little tribe, tucked away in the south. Do you feel the surprise of it? This, Lord, is this the throne, Lord? But Abner, verse 8. You read about Abner and what he does with Ishbosheth. Ishbosheth, Saul's son, was 40 years old, verse 10, when he began to reign over Israel. The sense is that it is. Only the house of Judah follows David and all the rest go after the other king. 
1566, John Knox, the great Scottish reformer, he poured out his despair to God in a prayer. He said this, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit and put at an end at thy good pleasure this my miserable life. For justice and truth are not to be found among the children of men. All this work, Lord, and there's nothing to show for it. Justice and truth are not to be found among the children of men. Oh, brothers and sisters this morning, to what did the Lord Jesus compare God's kingdom? If, if he was in Aberdeen, would the Lord Jesus have looked at something like the, the Teca, the new exhibition center, and said, that building is like God's kingdom? It's like cruise liners gliding around the world, packed full of thousands of people. Is that what the kingdom is like? No, it, it's like he said, a mustard seed, the, the, the smallest of seeds. The, the, the surprise of the kingdom is how small it is, but how big it will grow. Can you believe that, friends? Are you, are you happy with that this morning, the smallness of the kingdom? I want to finish with, finish with this. We're definitely not going to reach point three. Here's point two. Not just the surprise of the kingdom, but I want to show you the gospel of the kingdom. Do you know why you need to be on the right side of history and to be okay with the surprises of life in the kingdom? Because of the gospel of the kingdom. Because of what the king is like and who he shows us and what he gives us. Friends, in verses five to seven, There is a shadow there in these verses, a shadow from the rule and reign of the Lord Jesus that falls back across these pages. And it is a shadow that falls back across your Bible this morning from this very table here in front of you. It is a shadow that stretches back through history. It is a beautiful thing that in just a moment we are going to eat and drink together. And we're going to sing the song. You'll see it printed after the sermon. We're going to sing a song that says together that we're going to do all of this around the table of the king. I wonder if anybody in this room has ever ate at the table of a king or a queen. I know that some people have. Some people got to go to Balmoral, didn't they? To eat with the queen, the royal family. What, what do you need if you're going to do that? You can't just decide to do it on a day off I'll just rock up No, you you need an invitation don't you you need grace shown to you you need somebody to to come down from on high come down to where you are and open the gates and open the doors and to say to you come in you're welcome when they told David verse 4 it was the men of Jabesh Gilead who buried Saul David sent messengers to the men of Jabesh Gilead and said to them, May you be blessed by the Lord because you showed this loyalty to Saul your Lord and buried him. Now may the Lord show, here is the gospel friends, may the Lord show steadfast love and faithfulness to you and I will do good to you because you have done this thing. Do you know why some of you are surprised to be here today? 
because you have assumed you wouldn't ever have been welcome. You've assumed that if people knew the truth about you, you would never get in the front door or ever be allowed back. You've assumed that because you've blown it with someone in your family, you, you must therefore have blown it with God. Or you think that because you've blown it with God, you cannot be forgiven by God. And what you are still trying to get your head around is, is what all of us, friends, all of us are still trying to comprehend, which is that Jesus did not come to call the righteous, but sinners. He did not come to teach us to love our friends, but to love our enemies. And he taught us to do that because God does that for us. And that while we were still sinners and while we were his enemies, Christ died for us. This is the gospel of the kingdom. Do you know who the men of Jabesh Gilead were? The men of Jabesh Gilead, this was an area in the north of the kingdom. And they treated David's enemy Saul with great kindness. Saul had been kind to them, and so they were kind to him. 1 Samuel chapter 31, when we learn that Saul's decapitated body has been nailed to a wall in Bethshan. That's what the Philistines did. Cut off his head, took his body home, and nailed it to a wall so that all could see what happens to those who follow Israel's God. The men of Jabesh Gilead heroically in the dead of night sneak into Philistine-occupied territory and they retrieve his body, a daring rescue mission. They take his body down and they bury it. They treat it with respect. The wonder, friends, here in chapter 2 is that everybody knows that Saul was David's enemy. So surely David would have been happy for Saul's body to rot on the wall. Think of every time Saul hurled his spear at David, every time his paranoid delusion tried to end David's life. Friends, here incredibly, David says that the friends of my enemy are not my enemy. The friends of my enemy do not become my enemy. Oh, it's hard for us to grasp, isn't it? Verse 5. Now may the Lord show steadfast love and faith. May you be blessed, David is saying. And we think, oh, that's nice. But the men of Judah, when they come to David, verse 4, and when they tell David that the men of Jabesh Gilead buried Saul, they're expecting David to call down curses on the men of Jabesh Gilead. May they too be nailed to the wall in uncircumcised lands by uncircumcised hands. May their bodies never be buried or treated with dignity and respect. Oh, that is the way of the world, isn't it? You side with my enemy against me, you wrong me and become my enemy. You wrong me, I will wrong you. John Calvin again, let us learn from the example of David to rise above the vice of vengeance which is rooted in our nature. Isn't that true? Maybe you haven't lived long enough yet to discover vengeance growing in your heart, but it's there. 
Let us learn to rise above the vice of vengeance that is rooted in our nature and to reject such wicked corruption and always attempt to do good to our enemies, to those who hate us and persecute us. I want to ask you this morning, friends, have you ever tried to do that? Just stop and think about it. To do good to someone who hates you. Maybe you don't have anyone who hates you. You haven't lived long enough yet. It's one thing, isn't it? It's one thing to not lash out at an enemy, but to actually do good to them, to bless them, to, to, to tend to them, to give to them, to care for them. Brothers and sisters, friends, today I want to invite you today to come to this table, the table of the King, this is an invitation for you. If, if, ever you needed, if ever you needed confirmation and proof that what God gives, you, gives us in the gospel is not just words, but is actually real physical things that we can taste and hold and touch. This is an invitation to enemies made friends, to traitors made disciples, to murderers granted pardon, to, to prostitutes washed clean to lepers made whole. The, the gospel of the kingdom, friends, that we hear here in faint echo in 2 Samuel is in glorious technicolor here in front of us this morning at this table in bread and wine. David blesses his enemy's friends with the Lord's steadfast love and faithfulness. You know, I'm sure that those two words are often found all the way through the Bible, aren't they? To describe God himself. He abounds in love and steadfast love and faithfulness. Those two words sum up all that we could ever desire from God and all that we could ever ask from him. They speak of his forgiving grace and his trustworthiness. They're, they're words to describe the way in which God is married to his people. The way he pursues them and woos them and never abandons them, despite all of their abandoning of him. Now, these are words to describe the fact that no matter what the child does, the father, the mother, the parent are always there at the end of the road waiting, aren't they? Watching and longing. Longing for the child to come back and come home. The child who has become an enemy to return. Oh, these are words which say, friends, that although we say we do not want this man to reign over us, God says, I will come and die for them and never leave them and never forsake them. And I will give myself to them again and again and again and pursue them all the way home to the end. Amen.